Do we, uh, do we have any baseball fans in the room right now? Not Cardinals fans, yeah. Hey, that's fine. You're forgiven. That's why it's a church filled with grace. That was going to be my question. Was Cardinals fans? Do we have Cardinals fans here? Yeah, okay. Um, Royals fans? Royals fans? Okay. I guess in first service, I, when I asked Royals fans, I guess I said it with a tone that people went, hey, and I, like, I didn't mean anything by it, but hey, this, this may be surprising to you considering a lot of circumstances right now, but I hated baseball. I hated it. I grew up in a family that was all about basketball. I was a basketball player. My brothers were basketball players. We had family that was coaching and refing, so my life was all about basketball, and so for whatever reason, I just had this disdain for baseball. I thought baseball players were the kids who couldn't make the basketball team. <laughs> like, the, they could, you know, sit out in left field and eat grasshoppers and grass and things like that. Like, I just didn't like baseball. It was until my older brother Jason moved out to Los Angeles, California. And he lived there for about eight or nine years. And he became a Dodgers fan. And so one summer, he came back to Missouri And he decided to take all of his brothers to a St. Louis Cardinals game. So we got in the car. We drove up to St. Louis. We walk into Old Bush Stadium. We take our seats, good seats. We were halfway between third base and home. All of the festivities began. The the day was beautiful. The stadium was packed. The teams ran out onto the field. And I remember being thoroughly unimpressed. The game began in the top of the first inning. The away team just... Three up, three down, no action. The bottom of the first, the Cardinals were up to bat. First batter, out. Second batter, out. And I'm thinking, baseball, oh my goodness. Come on, like we need some excitement here. And and that's when I started to feel the stadium get this like sense of excitement. People were standing to their feet. They were starting to clap. They were chanting this player's name. And then this gigantic man started to walk out to home plate. He was wearing number five. His name was Albert Pujols. I didn't know who he was because I didn't follow baseball. But I remember paying attention because everybody was so excited about this guy. And then I remember watching him engage in this battle between him as the one on home plate and the pitcher who was on the mound. And man, there was probably six, seven, maybe eight pitches. And then eventually he got the pitch that he was waiting for. And that deep stance of his, he just reared back, swing and crack. I remember watching that ball fly well over 300 feet into the stands. The stadium erupted. Everybody was high-fiving. They were crazy. And I just went, I love baseball. This is awesome. That was the most incredible thing I had ever seen. And I'm high-fiving people. My brother's going, yeah, I told you so. And, and it was like... It was like a veil was lifted from my eyes, like just, just a couple moments before. I, I would have told anybody, yeah, baseball is boring. I hate this. And then when I saw that, something in me changed, and I became someone who loved baseball. When we got back to Joplin, went to the mall, bought myself my first baseball hat. It was a red Cardinals hat. I bought this Jimmy Edmonds jersey. If you guys, Cardinals fans, remember Jim Edmonds? And I rocked this jersey as often as I could because I wanted people to know that I loved baseball. I loved it. I used to hate it, but now that I've seen the game played, I fell in love with the game. And even to this day, I have taken it up on myself. Whenever I hear somebody say, baseball's boring, or you don't have to be an athlete to play baseball, I'll ask them this question, like, have you seen baseball? 
Like, have you seen a baseball game? Have you been and seen someone hit a home run and watch that ball fly? Have you seen a shortstop dive and make a double play? Like, it's incredible. Like, have you seen the game of baseball? If you were to see it, I promise you would become a follower of the game of baseball. And whenever I wear this jersey, I'm reminded of how I went, I saw, and I became. And this morning, I want to talk about seeing and being. Seeing and being. Let me define what I mean by that. When I say seeing, what I'm talking about is not like the physiology of seeing with your eyes. I'm talking about seeing in a much deeper sense or way that we have eyes to our heart. And then when we see something, maybe for the first time or in a new way for the first time, it begins to change something in us. It begins to impact us and make us become something different. When I say seeing, that's what I'm referring to. When I say being, I'm talking about a state of being, who we are. Like our true identity lived out, played out in real life. Our being on a daily basis is who we are functioning in everyday life. Seeing and being are good friends that walk hand in hand. In fact, just think about your life. Think about for someone who's married, dating, engaged, you have someone who you really love. Think about the first time you saw them. Or maybe the first time you saw them in a different way and how it wasn't long before you became someone who was drawn to them, in love with them, pursuing them. I remember the first time I saw the ocean with my own eyes and it wasn't long, a matter of moments before I became someone who was just captivated by its beauty. Or maybe the first time you went up to a mountain peak and you looked down and just saw the beauty of God's creation around you and you just became someone who was enthralled by that. Seeing and being are such a normal part of our lives. And I think it's true of our walk with Christ as well. You see, I, I really didn't like Jesus. Really didn't like him. I, I grew up in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor. But I really didn't like Jesus. I didn't have room for him. Like, I had everything in my life I needed I had friends, I had people who would validate me. I didn't have room for Jesus. And I remember the summer before my freshman year of high school, a good friend of mine asked if I would go on a mission trip with him to Mexico. And I remember wanting to go, but for all the wrong reasons, there were some girls going that I was interested in. It was a chance to leave the country. Like, sure, I'll go to Mexico. And I remember we flew into California. We drove across the the border. And just seeing all that I could see and meeting some of the people, I remember being thoroughly unimpressed with Mexico. And then as the days went by, I started to notice these other young men and women my age, 15, 16, 17-year-olds, who were talking about Jesus and, and sharing stories about Jesus in their lives and sharing their testimonies. I remember being really impacted that during worship, there were students my age who during worship, their eyes were closed, their hands were raised, and they were singing to this God as though He were really there. And I remember thinking that, like, that's strange to me, that they truly believe in this God, that they believe that he has touched them, that he has done something in them. And I I see that. I want that for me. We get back to the States the very next day. I, I go up and I talk to my dad and I say, Dad, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to be baptized. The very next day I'm standing waist deep in water and 
in front of the whole church, my dad says, Caleb, why don't you tell everybody why you want Jesus? And I was like, I didn't know it would be this hard. <laughs> and so I turned to the church and I said, I, I've seen him, his love, and the impact he's made on other people. And it changed something in me and I want to be what he has called me to. Seeing and being are such a common thing in our life. And they're so true in our Christian life as well. Now we've been in a series on the Holy Spirit for several weeks now. And this morning my task is to unpack how the Holy Spirit helps us to see and enables us to be people who reach the lost. Because if there's anything God wants from us, it's for us to be His hands and His feet to a lost world. But let me start by asking this question. Now, essentially, we're talking about evangelism. Now, I think evangelism, for a lot of people, like myself included, when people start to talk about it, I kind of always got this like, oh, don't tell me to do stuff (laughs) sort of thing. But we are talking about evangelism. And I do want to pose this question to you. Is there a difference? Is there a difference between a Christian who does evangelism and a Christian whose life looks like Jesus? Let me ask that again. Is there a difference between a Christian who does evangelism and a Christian whose life looks like Jesus? I think there is. And I think it looks kind of similar to this. I I used to work at Olive Garden. We called it the OG in Joplin. And I was a busser and a server. And I I did my job and I did it well. I took my, my white shirt. I would even wash it sometimes. And I would tuck it into my black slacks. And I'd wear clean shoes. And I'd put a smile on my face. And I'd walk out to the table and say, Hey, how you guys doing today? My name's Caleb. Can I serve you? And I was smiling and I was friendly and I was hospitable and I would bring them their food. And I would, I would sometimes I'd get down and I'd talk to their kids. What's your name, little guy? And they'd be like, I'm scared of you and stuff. But I was as I was hospitable as I could be. I would get them anything they needed because it was my job. And I enjoyed the benefits of my job, which was a paycheck and tips. And I knew that I would get something in return out of it. And so I would do it well and I would do it often until I clocked out. And then I would go home to my real life and do what I really wanted to do. And I think for a lot of Christians, myself included as a Christian, sometimes evangelism, sometimes reaching the lost looks a lot like that. That it's like the assignment that we have to do in order to be a Christian. But we just can't wait till we clock out and we get to do what we really want to do. And I think being like Jesus looks a lot more like this. Being like Jesus is inviting people to your home, preparing food for them that you purchased from your own bank account, setting it on the table for them to eat, serving them first, talking to them, letting them see who you are, getting to know who they are, engaging in a genuine relationship that will last beyond that moment. I think being like Jesus looks a lot more like that if you're trekking with the metaphor here. I believe, I believe that it is in being, according to that definition of being that I gave, it is in being that we reach a world that is not seeing. We're going to be walking through some passages of Scripture 
um, kind of quickly. And so this text will be on the screen. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to them as well. But we're going to be looking at how the Holy Spirit enables us to see and how the Holy Spirit empowers us to be. But before we get into that, let me pray. Father God, thank you for this moment and thank you for everybody who's sitting in this room because God, you, you orchestrate such mysterious things and, and God, you do things beyond understanding, but it's just incredible to know that for everybody in this room, you worked in their lives in such a way that they're sitting here this morning and God, you can work in such a way to where eyes can be opened. God, you can work in such a way to where we can see you clearly today. And I pray that that would happen. We pray this in your name. Amen. The Holy Spirit enables us to see. And here's why seeing is important. If you've ever walked into a dark room, or maybe it's that night where your power goes out, and so you're fumbling around the house looking for a flashlight, you guys know that feeling of walking through a dark room, right? To me, it looks kind of like this. Like, you know, like I don't want to hurt myself because I can't see what's around me. And like my heart rate goes up when I'm in a dark room because I can't see and I, I would probably hit my head on something. Like we don't like being in darkness because we can't see. And when we can't see, we're in danger of hurting ourselves or maybe falling in a hole or whatever. I hope you don't have a hole in your house. But like we don't like being in the dark because we can't see. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6 about our eyes and about how our eyes function in relation to how we see the world. He says this, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus says your eyes are like a lamp. Like when you're in a dark place, you need a lamp, you need a flashlight, you need a torch, you need something to illuminate the darkness around you so that you can see where you are, so that you have clarity. But if your lamp is not working, if you run out of battery, then you can't see. You don't know where you are, you don't know where you're going. What Jesus is illustrating here is something today that we call worldview. Your view of the world And the lens that you place in front of your eyes, which is how you interpret everything that you see, that is your lamp. And if you see the world contrary to the truth that Christ gives us, then you walk in darkness. But if you see with His eyes, if your eyes are a lamp and it illuminates the world around you, and you can see truth clearly, then you understand who Christ is. But I think today we have so much darkness around us. So many people in so many places and so many cultures that have flip-flopped truth from wickedness. A lot of scholars believe that when Jesus pointed this out in Matthew chapter 6, that He's hearkening back to a passage from Isaiah where Jesus says this, or I'm sorry, where the prophet Isaiah says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Those who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Those who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That there is a way that if we allow our sight, our eyes to become clouded, that we can become so distorted in our view of truth that good becomes evil to us. Evil becomes good to us. Just look at history. Look at what the the Nazi party did over in Germany. 
that they were seeking to eradicate the world of these evil ethnicities because they thought that was good and right and just. They did not acknowledge that they were evil. They thought they were doing a good work. Look at ISIS today, who because of their ideology, they're taking the lives of innocent people as worship to their God and their belief system. They don't see themselves as evil. They see themselves as good, serving out God's will in the world. And I think that there are a lot of things today that because we're clouded in our sight and we can't see clearly that we have just flip-flopped right for wrong and we don't know what's truth anymore. Because in today's culture, truth is relative. Truth is what you make it to be. Truth is how you define it. It might be true for you, but it's not true for me. That might work for you, but in my world, that doesn't work. Therefore, truth is this to me. And I think we do it in these three areas more than any others. We do it in areas of marriage, in areas of the sanctity of life, and in areas of sexual ethics, where we've taken these things and we've made them what we want them to be. And it sounds ridiculous to most people to think that there's a higher power, that there's a God who tells us what truth is. That's absurd to a lot of people. Truth is my experience. Truth is my desire. Truth is my passion and what I want it to be. And so in these three areas, we take something like the sanctity of life. And we look at human life on both spectrums, in the beginning and towards the end. And we're walking in a direction of saying, if life is not wanted and productive, then there's no reason for it to be here. And we've got countries around the world where euthanasia is common. And if you reach a point in life where you're no longer productive for society, well then why would we keep you around? There are some bioethics professors that I heard about recently that are in a number of prominent schools in the U.S. that are having discussions about something that they're calling a 30-day period, where they believe that a mother should have 30 days after the birth of her child to determine whether or not she wants that child to remain alive. And this is not in public forum yet, but this is what bioethics and some people in the medical community are discussing, whether or not that's ethical. My question would be, how could you even ask whether or not it's ethical? Because we have been so darkened in our sight that we see something which is inherently evil. Because we have a creator who says life is sacred. But we're just a bunch of biological machines that don't function for any reason other than reproducing and eating and having pleasure. So why not in life if it inconvenience us? And we celebrate a woman's right to choose because it's her body. And I understand the awkwardness and the tension in that debate, but I would just say there is a life that is living. It is considered sacred by its creator, and we have no rights. But we've taken light and made it darkness. The second is areas of sexual ethic where most people can't even fathom an idea that a higher power would tell us what we can and cannot do with our bodies. And we seek pleasure in whatever means we find it. And we don't want anyone or anything to tell us what we can and cannot do with another human being. And we've taken light. We've made it darkness. And lastly, marriage, which is being redefined all the time. But I don't want to take the typical slant. We talk a lot about homosexuality when it comes to marriage. And that's something that should be talked about and discussed. But I want to pose this. I believe that decades ago, 
when we started to look at marriage as some archaic, strange, pointless institution, who cares about what this God says? And we started to say that people don't have to be married. People don't have to have a covenant under God with one another to engage in sex or to engage in a relationship. That we opened the door to all different definitions of marriage. And it didn't start with the homosexual community. It started with the heterosexual community who said marriage, there's no point for it. I can sleep with whom I want, as many people as I want, as often as I want. Or I can take my marriage and I can throw it to the side because it's no longer bringing me the happiness that I want. And in us developing a culture that looks like that, we have opened the door for anyone to say, well, marriage can be whatever we want it to be, or it can be entirely unnecessary. And we've exchanged light for darkness. The danger here is that we don't even realize the ground we stand on. We don't even realize how much danger we are in by the darkness of our eyes. We stand on fragile ground. Just a couple of days ago, this past week, I was driving to Kansas City. Rachel and, and my son Finn, they were coming back from Cincinnati, Ohio, where, where Rachel is from. They're visiting family, but they're flying back in. So I'm, I'm picking them up, and I'm driving down the highway. I've got it on cruise control, 75 miles an hour. I'm about 10 miles from the airport, and I'm listening to a podcast. That's what I do nearly any time I'm in the car. I download a podcast, I listen to something, and I follow a podcast called Stuff You Should Know, and it's just random topics that they investigate, and they're like, you probably don't know about this, so we'll tell you about it. And this, this podcast was about ancient medical practices. And they begin to explain how brain surgery used to look hundreds of years ago. And they got into detail and they added sound effects of what a saw made out of stone on a human skull might sound like. And they add that as they're describing of all these different things. And you see, I have a problem with stuff like that. And I don't do needles. I don't do blood. I don't do that sort of thing. And I have passed out a lot due to circumstances like that. And so I know when it's coming. And I'm driving down the road, 75 miles an hour, cruise control, and all of a sudden my hearing starts to fade in and out. I start to get really clammy and hot. My vision starts to close in around me. And I realize, holy cow, I'm fainting. I barely have time to apply my foot to the brake I pull my car to the left side median of a three-lane highway, and then it's black. <laughs> I remember waking up where I'm, I'm like, I have cognition, like I'm conscious, but my eyes aren't open yet. And I remember thinking like, where am I? <laughs> and why am I wet? Like my window had somehow been rolled down. I don't remember if I rolled it down or if I leaned on it, but I'm like, it's raining on me. Why? <laughs> And why am I in a car? And why am I? And then at that moment, a semi drives by me, probably 12, 18 inches from the back of my car, which is sticking out in the third lane. And as it drives by, it just shakes my car. My eyes pop open. All my memory comes back. And I'm like, I just fainted on the highway. And my car is half out in the left lane. Oh, my goodness. And I realized, like, I was in danger. The roads are wet. There's semis coming down the road. Like, I need to move. Like, the ground where my car is currently on is not safe ground. And before my eyes were open, I didn't realize that. I didn't know I was in danger. And that's why we have a Holy Spirit who helps us to see. That's why God's Spirit wants us to see with clarity. Because we live in a dark world. 
where truth is relative and we're constantly asking, what is truth? What do I do with it? What do I believe? What do I put my hope in? And it's God's Spirit in us and through us that whispers truth, pulls the veil from our eyes so that we can see what we need to see. I believe this is taught and illustrated by Jesus in in John chapter 16, if you want to turn to it. This is a passage that Kevin taught through a couple weeks ago, but I think it's really important for this topic and what we're discussing. It starts in verse 8. It goes through verse 11. He's talking to his disciples about how he has to go to a cross, how his life has to be given, and how he will no longer be with them. And they start to become fearful and confused. And he says, hold on, hold on. I'm leaving something with you. And he says this, when he, referring to the Holy Spirit, comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. He says the Holy Spirit will do three things for the world. And as Christians, we are a part of the world. He's referring to the Holy Spirit will do this for all people. But there is a nuanced, and this is something that a lot of scholars debate about, and a lot of different commentaries deal with this differently. It's how the Holy Spirit deals with those who don't belong to Christ, and how the Holy Spirit deals with those who do belong to Christ. But it says this, that the Holy Spirit will prove that we are in the wrong Prove to the world that they are in the wrong. The Holy Spirit will cast light on dark places. Will show to people that they are standing on fragile ground. That the lifestyle they're living, what they define as truth, what they have chosen for their life, that is not actual truth. And it will allow them to have a moment where they experience conviction and they get to choose. What the Holy Spirit does for those who belong to Christ is that it does not condemn, but the Holy Spirit to those who walk in a direction that would not be God's will, though they have given their life to Him, the Holy Spirit beckons them to come back to grace and to come back to the light. That it's a fight of living in the light or living in darkness. And the Holy Spirit reveals that. The second thing the Holy Spirit reveals to us is that Christ is good. That Christ is righteous, that He is holy. And it sets us up as a contrast. That the Holy Spirit convicts us of our not being good and then reveals that Christ is good. And so we are brought to a place of saying, there's nothing good in me. And then Christ comes onto the scene, He says, but I am good for you. And I can put my goodness on you. And lastly, the Holy Spirit reveals this, and I love this. It will prove that the world is wrong about judgment. It will prove that we were wrong about judgment in this. This is what I love. It says that he will discredit the accuser. Because our hearts sometimes condemn ourselves. Even as we accept Christ, we bring Christ into our lives and he redeems us. He makes us new. And yet we still condemn ourselves. And he's saying, I am proving to you that the accuser is himself condemned. 
that the Holy Spirit will confirm to us that the voice of the accuser, the voice of Satan, the deception that he whispers into our ears, that that is a lie. And that we are no longer what he says we are, but we are who Christ says we are. And we're celebrating this next week on Easter, that on his death, he declared that death no longer has victory. Death no longer has sting. We have victory in Christ. We are who he says we are. And he calls us children. He calls us friends. He calls us his own. The Holy Spirit confirms that we are not good, but that Christ is good. And that Satan can no longer tell us who we are, that Christ has said who we are. And I'm so thankful for that. And I don't think that it's coincidence that what the Holy Spirit reveals to our hearts is one and the same of the truth of the gospel. And this passage from John 16 looks a lot like the Apostle Paul unpacking the gospel in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says this to the church in Ephesus who would have been Gentile Christians who never would have known about the Old Testament or about Yahweh God or about Jesus until they recently received him. And so Paul is reminding them of who they received and why and what the gospel is. He says this, and just look at the pattern here and how the pattern of hearing the gospel and becoming like Christ because of his grace looks so much like what the Holy Spirit confirms to us. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. The Holy Spirit will confirm to us that we are not good. The gospel is that we are not good. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in order in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It reveals that Christ is good. And verse 8, 9, and 10. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance to do. The gospel is this, that we are not good and we are lost. And so Christ sent someone to be good for us and to pay the penalty for us. He extends grace to us and we receive access to that grace by placing our faith in him. That's by saying, I am not good, he is good, and I believe in his goodness. And I believe that his goodness is on me, that I am now clothed with his righteousness because I cannot be righteous. It's through faith we have access to that. To be transformed and to do the good works that Christ has called us to. It's in seeing Jesus. And through the Holy Spirit opening our eyes, pulling back the veil that is in front of us, that we see more clearly the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus, and we begin to be transformed into who He has always called us to be. But I have to stop here with the the tension that I can never get past. The tension at this point 
is for me, for my heart, for my mind, which is fleshly, to start saying things like, well, then I've just got to do it. And I've got to just change myself. And I've got to just power through the difficult times. And in my own strength and in my own effort, like I do the changing, right? Like I see Jesus, okay? But then I do the changing. And here's, here's the tension. Is in the Christian world, there seems to be two extremes. There's an extreme over here that says, because of God's grace and it's a free gift, I don't have to do anything. And then over here, there's a camp that says this, that I have got to get my stinking act together. And I've got to clean up before God will have anything to do with me. And here's how I best understand the gospel and when we rest in grace because we can't work for it and earn it, and when we actually are called to do something, and it's this, it's that God's grace is free, it is given to us, yet we do not receive it passively. God's grace is a free gift, yet we do not receive it passively. And so the question is, how then do we actively receive God's free gift of grace into our lives? And I think that he unpacks it for us here in John 15. This is a passage that just preceded the passage from 16 that we read where Jesus is with his disciples in that upper room and he's explaining to them who he is and what he's called them to. And in verses 4 through 8, he says this, Remain in me. You'll hear the word remain. Look for it as we're reading this. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch, we are the branch that he's talking about. When he says branch, he's referring to us. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Jesus is the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples." A deeper understanding of this text has changed my fundamental understanding of the gospel and what we're called to. There are two actions here in this passage, but there's only one command. The two actions are this. Here's the first. The first action is that remaining is taking place. Some of your translations might say abide. To remain or to abide. And in the original Greek, what that meant was to linger to like set up camp like an army as they traveled. They would stop and they would say, we will remain here. We will abide here. We will set up tents here, fire here. This is where we will remain. To abide, to remain is to linger. To put off everything else so that you can be in this place. That's the first action. The second action is that fruit is growing. There's fruit that is developing within us, within you. And here's what has been formative for my understanding of the gospel. This is so important. We are only commanded one thing. You are not commanded to bear fruit. 
You are not commanded to grow fruit. You cannot grow fruit. You cannot bear fruit. And if you try, you will be just as Jesus said, like a branch that is not connected to the vine and will wither and die. I was reading an article about, uh, I guess it was like neurologists who study the brain and how the brain functions. And, and they made this epiphany, which I think it's so cool when science, modern science, has an epiphany which reflects the truth of the gospel from thousands of years ago that we've had. And it was this, these neurologists said that human beings actually have a limited supply of what we'll call willpower. And in fact, the more willpower you use, the more quickly you will deplete it and be an utter failure. And then they came to this conclusion. The only way that that would not be the case would be if somehow, and they kind of laugh as I say this, somehow if you could have someone else's willpower... That would be the only way that you could actually do it. But since that's not a possibility, and I'm listening to this, I'm going, you need to hear the gospel. That the gospel is God's good work through us. That when we are connected to the vine, that is when we bear fruit. That it is in fact their conclusion. We have someone else's goodness working through us. We have someone else's willpower within us. So that when we are connected to Christ, and this is that command, that command is to remain, the command is to linger, the command is to abide in Christ, to orient our life around Him, to set up camp near Christ, to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and run with perseverance the race marked out for us, to abide in Christ, that's the command is to abide. And when we abide in Christ, when we linger near Christ, fruit is developed. We grow fruit. And we become a person. And we look like a person who personifies and lives out love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Study that passage in Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit. All these things that we want to be and that we so often try to be on our own. The answer to it is that we abide in Christ. That we are called to position ourselves near Him. And when we're near Him, the Holy Spirit works in us to open our eyes to see with clarity all the dark places in our hearts that we then give to Him. And He comes in. And what used to be darkness now becomes growth and fruit. But the church, and when I say church, I mean like capital C church. For far too long, the church has been in the business of behavioral adaptation. Because the church knows what fruit looks like, so you had better look like you have fruit. And the church knows what it looks like to not bear fruit, so you'd better not look like that. And so for far too long, the church has been in the business of behavioral adaptation. Do this, don't do that, and you're good. Christ has always been in the business of heart transplantation. So often people want to change behavior. Christ has always wanted to change identity and heart and motivation. And that's what the gospel is. That you die. Because someone died for you. And then he came back to life and we celebrate this next week. He came back to life so that we can have life. We can have it new. We can be filled by his spirit and have love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. 
Because I believe that it's in being that we reach a world that's not seeing. Rachel's older sister Megan and her husband Kyle recently had triplets. All girls. (laughs) I, at the same time, am overjoyed for them and I weep at night because their life is over. (laughs) But they had triplet girls and so Megan and Kyle, they spent about eight weeks in the hospital just on bed rest. And while they were there, it was so cool to visit them and hear the stories and see different things that they had done. They received so much love from people in their church and so much love from people in their community that their room was filled with with gifts and snacks and flowers and notes. And so they started setting a table out in the hallway outside their room that just had cookies and brownies and food on it with notes that said, please help yourself. They wrote encouraging notes to their nurses. Megan, Rachel's sister, snuck out of her room to go and befriend this lady whose husband lived an hour away and couldn't come to see her very often. And I talked to my brother-in-law on the phone and he was telling me, man, we've received so much love from people. And he's telling me these stories about how that love's just overflowing into the nurses, into the other patients, into the doctors that come and speak to them. Because they are someone who Christ has worked in their hearts and worked in them in such a way that they are becoming more like Jesus. And they can't help themselves but be like Jesus around the people in their lives because they can see and they've become and now they're reaching the world around them. And I'm so encouraged to hear about Christians who aren't reminding themselves to do evangelism, but they're waking up each and every day reminded that they are not good, but God is good, and that there's a gracious God who can work goodness through them, and that because of their thankfulness for His love and grace, they're just extending that to the world. As we're closing and the band comes up, I want to do my best to be practical, because Sometimes I'm not really practical and applicable. But I want to help you guys see how we can respond to this sermon this morning. I think there's kind of three ways to respond to this. Because I think our hearts can be in one of three positions right now. Possibly more. If so, come and talk to me. I'd love to hear that. But here's the first way I would like for you to respond. If you're sitting and listening to this and you're saying, I just don't see Jesus how you're describing him. I hear people talk about their love for him and how glorious he is, but I've never seen him that way. And I don't understand why, but I want to. Well, I would ask you to do these things. I would ask you to pray fervently that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes because this is not a physiological sight. This is a spiritual sight. And the Holy Spirit does miraculous things that we cannot understand. C.S. Lewis, a theologian that's known to probably most people, he wrote his account of how he became a believer in Christ. He grew up an atheist, did not believe in any religion, and one day he went on a bike ride. And he says, as I was on that bike ride, I began to see things differently. I saw the trees differently. The rain came down and it was on my face. I returned home and I believed in Jesus. My eyes were opened. The Holy Spirit works in ways that we cannot understand. Just pray fervently that he would help you to see. Or talk to one of us pastors here at at CCC. We'd love to study scripture with you. Open up passages and just walk through the Bible to show you the glory of Christ. Or just someone who you respect and honor who's walked with Jesus for a long time. Go to them and just say, just share your story with me. I would like to hear about your walk with Christ. If that's where you find yourself, I encourage you to do that. And secondly, if you see yourself in a place where... You know who Jesus is. You've seen him. But for some reason, you don't feel like you're becoming more like him. I would very much so encourage you to assess your motivations. 
Ask yourself, why is it that you pursue Christ? Why is it you pursue righteousness and holiness? Is it that you hope to store up good enough works and deeds that God then owes you good in return? Is it that you know that just like in America that we have to earn things, that we have to work hard to get payment, and that your life is actually a payment towards Christ so that you can earn the right to get something from Him? Because that's not transformation. That's self-righteousness. And lastly, if you see Christ, you love Christ, and you just want to serve Him with your whole heart, I would ask you to get creative. I would liberate you to get creative. If you want to invite people to church, invite them to church. But let me challenge you to take it a step further. Invite people into your home. Invite them to have a meal with your family. And when they invite you to their house, go to their house as well. When your not-so-Christian friends invite you to a not-so-Christian party, go. Seems like Jesus did that, and and if you've got the ability to turn water into wine, go for it. Get creative with your love. Get creative with the way that you reach people. Let the love that Christ has filled your heart with overflow into the lives of those around you. In fact, let me just kind of promote these two things. There's something that's coming to Fort Scott recently that's called Circles. And we're really excited about this opportunity. It's an initiative for the whole community. This is not a church initiative, but we're on board with it. And it's an opportunity for you as a family or a couple or an individual to kind of adopt and rub shoulders with someone who has had a hard life. Someone who doesn't have much opportunity. Someone who's probably never been taught the things that I know I am grateful I was taught by my parents, by teachers. And you have an opportunity to be kind of an adoptee of a person or of a couple and you can teach them how to budget and do finances and cook and clean and maintain a house. You can help them with parenting. You'll go with them shopping and show them how to make a shopping list and a budget for that. You can just let all that God has taught you and how he has loved you just rub off onto someone else. And if you want to know more about that, just talk to Tim Woodring. He's kind of heading that up for us. And if you just want to serve in tangible ways, like if you're good with tools, I'm not. <laughs> if you're good with tools and with your hands, there's a work day at Camp Siokomo coming up in a couple weeks where they need people, men and women, who are gifted at that sort of thing and they can go to the camp and just apply some hours of work and, and really beautify this camp that's goal is to reach young people for Christ. And so there are opportunities to serve and I would just challenge you to get creative with your love. Because I believe that it's in seeing who Christ is and the Holy Spirit pulling back that veil from our eyes that we then become people who can reach a lost world that's not seen. As this song is played, let's worship the God who we've talked about for far too long. I apologize. But let's worship Him and let's thank Him for all that He's done and what He is doing. And so let's praise the Father through song. And let's respond in how he's calling us. Let's worship.